This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi Photo Book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and much more with Siwi. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siwi products when you spend £30, visit siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Now, let's get on with the show. Hi everyone and welcome to Wanderlust Off The Page, a travel podcast designed to help you discover the most fulfilling travel experiences on the planet. From culture and history to nature and wildlife, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes of the magazine to go deeper into our favourite destinations and meet the travel writers, experts and personalities who will bring our stories to life. My name is Lynn Hughes, the founding editor of Wanderlust. And I'm Rosa Fitzgerald, the special features editor at Wanderlust. Now, if you're new to Wanderlust, here's what you need to know. Wanderlust is the UK's leading independent travel magazine, which has been taking the road less travelled since 1993. We've won numerous awards along the way, and to this day, we continue to inspire our audience of curious travellers with each issue of our magazine, as well as our website. Both of these are just filled with off-the-beaten-track experiences and some of the world's most exciting destinations, both near and far. Responsible, conscious and sustainable travel is always at the very heart of everything that we cover. So do be sure to check us out by heading to wanderlustmagazine.com or become a Wanderlust Club member and join our community of serious travellers for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. This will get you six beautiful collectible issues, exclusive member-only competitions and events, access to our entire online archive back to 2010, plus heaps of other benefits. And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button on the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast as well. In this episode, we'll be transporting you to the deep south. Writer Jackie Agate recently went on a literature-themed road trip in the USA, and she uncovered some of the stories behind some literary classics from writers such as Escott Fitzgerald, Harper Lee and William Faulkner. And what a journey she had. Her road trip occurred to Alabama, Mississippi and New Orleans. She explored the former houses of the writers, as well as the settings that, of course, inspired their stories. That includes the town where To Kill a Mockingbird is set and the streets in New Orleans, which inspired Tennessee Williams' a streetcar named Desire. And in conversation with Jackie today is travel writer Aaron Miller, um, and they will be exploring each of these destinations and how they shape the lives and the stories of some of these world's most famous writers. It really does make for a fascinating listen. So enjoy. The sunlight dripped over the house like golden paint over an art jar. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote these honeyed words in 1920. They open the Ice Palace, a tale of a restless southern belle who strikes north with her new love. I drove the curved path to the Fitzgerald Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and I thought of these words as I rounded the bend. 
Evening light had coloured everything in pastels. The cedar-shingled house, where F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald lived for a stint in the early 1930s, was washed with peach sunshine. Out front, a tree stood slick with wisteria, and the road glowed amber. Jackie, so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. That is such a beautiful passage, and I'm really intrigued by this article as well. I love the idea, a literary-themed road trip around the Deep South, which is one of my favorite places in the States. It's always such a fun place to travel in. So before we get into the details, how did you come up with this idea? I travel a lot in the Deep South and love the Deep South, and I find it to be such a continuous well of stories so I was looking for new ways to tap into it and there's such a font of literature written by southern writers and written about the south so I thought that a literary trail would be a great way to kind of delve into these regions a little bit more deeply. I love how you describe that, trying to discover the spirit of the Deep South. I I can kind of feel that when I've traveled there too. There is just a a kind of unique atmosphere, unique feel about the place, which is really tangible when you're there. But how would you describe that? It's really hard to define and actually hard to put your finger on when you're there. Um, But I think it mainly comes from the people that you meet along the way. There's a strong tradition of oral storytelling in the South. And I think that comes across when you meet people, the way they speak to you, the way they tell their own stories and the way that they want to know about you. I hear constantly, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) And it's that kind of, you know, statement that gets, you know, gets you chatting and gets you talking. And there's also, I think, partly comes from the weather and the landscapes. There's a kind of raw, unfettered feeling about the landscapes of the South and the cities, which are often intensely creative. So, of course, talking about that oral storytelling tradition in the Deep South, one of the greatest examples of this and what you're investigating here and, and finding out about and exploring was the, you know, some of the great American writers. So who are we going to hear about today? And are these writers that you've always read and kind of loved and we're kind of interested to find out more about? Yeah. So the writers that we're going to hear about today and that I followed on my travels were the Fitzgeralds, F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams were the main people. So it's a real mixture of people who were born and bred in the South and writers who had a fascination with the South. And for me, I studied literature at university The Great Gatsby was the first book I read that had a connection to the South in that F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in Montgomery for a period. And To Kill a Mockingbird is another of my all-time favourite novels, which centres on Maycomb, which is very closely related to Monrovia, where Harper Lee actually um, lived and grew up. So it was a really incredible road trip. I, I love the title too, Doing the Deep South the Right Way, W-R-I-T-E. Um, mm-hmm. And you started in Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama, went all the way down to New Orleans, one of my favorite cities in the world. <laughs> but let's start in Montgomery and the Fitzgeralds. Tell me about it. What was that trip like? Yeah, it was fascinating. So it's actually quite a departure from what you might expect. If you know much about the Fitzgeralds, you know that both... Zelda and Scott 
um, kind of wrote these glitzy stories. You know, The Great Gatsby is obviously the most famous one. Then there's Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which centres on the French Riviera. And actually, um, their life in Montgomery was quite different to that. It was more domestic. Um, they lived there during a period of their life and marriage, which was very difficult. They had There was a lot of competition between them. And you feel a lot of Zelda in the city, I think, um, when you go around. She was born and raised there. Her family were from there. She was kind of the it girl in town, almost. And Scott came in and fell in love with her. And she actually rejected him for the first time until he showed her that he uh, got published. And then she decided that he was all right. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you've got this mix of Zelda's childhood and the places that she would have visited when she was younger. And then you've got this love affair which played across the city. But the most fascinating and kind of fertile ground for Fitzgerald lovers is the Fitzgerald Museum, which is part of the home that they lived in together um, in the early 1930s. So the second floor has been made into two suites. And then beneath, you've got this museum packed with curios related to the Fitzgeralds, um, their daughter's dresses, love notes scribbled between the two of them, signed books, newspaper cuttings. So yeah, it's a really fascinating um, city to visit if you are interested in the Fitzgeralds. You kind of associate the Fitzgeralds with this kind of glittering, roaring 20s scene, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then this is kind of the antithesis to that in some ways. How did seeing this kind of change your perception of the books and also vice versa, like knowing the book so well, was that like seeing this city through different eyes than maybe most of us who haven't read the books would? I think so. Yeah. I think particularly The Great Gatsby, it's this kind of glittering facade and same with Tender as the Night. There is this kind of overarching sense that this couple is glittering and fancy and my tour guide mentioned living at the top of the champagne bottle and that wasn't the case when they were in Montgomery. Things were very difficult between them. So there's a sense that you get the kind of real raw Fitzgeralds in Montgomery in a way that you might not if you visited, say, Long Island in New York and kind of went on a Gatsby trail. And what about Montgomery as a city? Like, you know, there's people go there for different reasons and, and mm -hmm. this is a great and really interesting reason to go there. But what about the rest of the city? Yeah, so it's a really interesting city. Obviously, it's the capital of Alabama. And a lot of people go there for the civil rights history. You've got the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which Martin Luther King was a pastor at, which you can go and visit. Also, the Equal Justice Legacy Museum is a really important civil rights museum that just opened last year with really poignant displays that covers history from slavery all the way up until today and the mass incarceration of African-Americans. It's got a very kind of sombre but interesting history that a lot of people go to discover more about. Um, but 
aside from that, it's also just a happening capital city with lots of great food spots, um, a great kind of burgeoning vegan scene there. And then, yeah, and then this kind of deep-rooted literary history that's connected to the Fitzgeralds. A vegan scene in Alabama. Mm-hmm. I never would have thought in a million, as like a, as a vegetarian, where they, I live in Colorado and they like serve bacon on, on salads. You know, there's literally nothing on the menu. And yeah. they kind of look at you funny when you don't want chicken. But yeah, in Alabama, that's a surprise. But I think there's lots of surprises like that deep down in the deep south, which is, uh, which is one of the nice things about visiting it. And so next up, we're staying in Alabama, but we're actually traveling about 100 miles south to Monroeville, which inspired the setting for one of the most famous American novels of all time, To Kill a Mockingbird. And we're going to hear about that right now. Lee writes... Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. Her own hometown of Monroeville, Alabama, about 160 kilometers southwest of Montgomery, inspired Maycomb, and it's a near cookie-cutter copy of the fictional place, right down to the courthouse that sagged in the square. But when I arrived in Monroeville, it was hard to imagine that the town had ever seen rain. The sun lit up brick walls crawling with bookish murals and the dome on the 1903 courthouse burned white. Now, one of the best things about travel is that so often the memories you create last for a lifetime, don't they? And one of the best things about our sponsor, Siwi, is that they can help us to relive those special memories and keep them all in one place in a beautiful photo book for us to look back on time and time again. So have you got any favourite travel albums, Lynn, or photo books? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting somewhere where I've got photo albums next to me from travels from over the years, including exploring New Zealand from north to south and face-to-face encounters with gorillas sitting there. Oh, wow. It really brings it back that there's nothing like them, really, you know, particularly when you look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so actually, my, one of my news resolutions this year is to make photo books of some of the more memorable recent travels as well, you know, those over the last few years, because it really does make you live those experiences again, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, I love nothing more than when I go home to see my parents, just to look through those old travel albums from when we were children and having a look back at those memories. And it it really just helps to bring those memories back and make them really fresh again, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And of course, a photo book makes a great present for a loved one as well. Yes, definitely. And I think now, especially when we have, you know, social media, it's so easy just to flick through them all online. But it really isn't the same as having that really nice experience of looking through those printed versions and and holding those memories in your hand it just makes it so much more special so whichever travel memories you would like to savor whether it's a recent trip or your first ever adventure siwi can help and a siwi photo book makes for the perfect keepsake so be sure to head over to their website and make the most of their exclusive offer and save 25% on all Siwi products when you spend £30. For all the details and for full T's and C's, go to siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's C-E-W-E.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. Right, now let's get back to the show. Mm-hmm. 
So Kill a Mockingbird is such a beautiful book, such an important book, and obviously one of the American classics. And that's a, a wonderful quote there from Harper Lee as well, the beginning of the passage you just read for us. But for people that aren't familiar with the book, can you give us a little bit more of the background on To Kill a Mockingbird and its setting, Maker? So it centers on Tom Robinson, a black man accused of raping a white woman, and then Atticus Finch, a local lawyer's efforts to defend him in court, um, and also surrounding that, the adventures of his young children, Scout and Jem. So what's true of lots of stories that are set in the South it's so intensely focused on the goings-on in Maycomb, which was inspired by Harper Lee's hometown of Monroeville. But actually, it's cast in a much wider look at what it was like to be a black person um, in the 1930s in the South and what it would have been like to be a white ally defending this person. So although... The setting feels so small, it's actually making a much milder commentary, the state of the South at that time. And so actually still in Monroeville, everything centres around this courthouse. And To Kill a Mockingbird is still so alive in the town. And every year they put on the play in the courthouse it starts on the lawn outside and then it goes into the courthouse and all the actors are local people from Monroeville so there really is a sense that this story lives on in this community. It must be amazing to see that play in the courthouse that kind of inspired it. What was that like? Can you tell me a little bit more about it? How do they do it? Yeah so they start on the lawn outside and so there's just all these chairs set up um, and they have the houses um, of Atticus Finch and Boo Radley and there really is this incredible atmosphere and you know it's very intimate as well you're not very far from the actors at all and then you move into the courthouse and it's set up exactly as it was then and Harper Lee actually used to go and watch her own lawyer father as he would defend people. So there's this real sense of kind of history repeating itself, I suppose. But yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. The atmosphere is incredible. And, you know, talking about this, there's a lot of modern day parallels with what happened there. And, you know, a lot of elements of truth in some ways to what Harper Lee and, and other writers in the South wrote about. And in particular, this courthouse, there's a story of a trial, a kind of similar trial that happened in 1934. Could you tell us a little bit about that too? So Harper Lee always has said that the story To Kill a Mockingbird wasn't based on any particular case or any particular trial. But in this very courthouse, there was actually a trial that unfolded that was very similar. So a black man named Waterlet was sentenced to death by an all-white jury for raping a white woman, just as Tom Robinson is um, in the book, or, or is, is possibly set to be in the book. So Waterlet actually did go to prison, but it was eventually decided that he was falsely accused. But unfortunately, he 
died of tuberculosis while he was still in jail. So it's an incredibly tragic story, one that Harper Lee would have been very aware of and one that yeah, has so many parallels with the story of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, it, it makes it so poignant, doesn't it? That's one thing, kind of seeing museums and learning about the history. But do you think there's something important about reading a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, where you can really kind of see what that experience, you know, just a glimpse of it, some kind of small version of it, what that experience of, of being a black person growing up in the South and, you know, segregation era, Jim Crow laws, racism, you know, to get an impression of, of really what that was like, did that change your perception of that history? Did that make it come alive in some ways? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's important to remember that Harper Lee also wasn't a black person. She was a white woman writing about an experience of a a black person living in the South. And and it's also about Atticus Finch and his experience of being, you know, a white ally in the South. Um, But I do think that literature can be an incredible vehicle for attempting to understand people's stories and people's experiences. Yeah, whenever I've travelled in the Deep South, there's this kind of strange contrast sometimes. Like you can visit plantations, um, you know, you can visit that and see that kind of history, but you're sort of also surrounded by this beauty, by this softness. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the kind of welcome that you get in the Deep South too. Mm. And it's it's kind of a strange experience for that too, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. There's definitely a dichotomy there. And I think that places in the Deep South are trying to get better at telling a holistic history. So, for example, if you visit a plantation that you don't only hear about the wealthy plantation owners and see the natural beauty, but you also hear about the stories of the enslaved people who lived and worked there too. But you're totally right. Yeah, there is this kind of strange jarring between what's often a very naturally beautiful setting and sense of hospitality and warmth with a very difficult, complex history. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So let's continue your journey. So next up, you traveled to Mississippi and <laughs> following in the footsteps of one of the great American writers, William Faulkner. I'd reached Rowan Oak, which Faulkner bought in 1930 and lived in until his death via the Bailey Woods Trail, one of the writer's favourite places to wander. Underfoot, the earth was like Play-Doh. A storm had not long passed and another threatened to break. The scent of wisteria stung the air, as soupy and stifling as Faulkner's prose, and lilac petals flecked the ground like confetti. Eventually, an alley of eastern red cedars framed the Greek revival home. The house is captured as it would have been in the 1960s, a perfect snapshot of literary history. I ambled between a jumble of rooms, peering into Faulkner's writing room, where a typewriter is set atop a humble wooden table. The plot outlined for his 1954 novel, A Fable, is scrawled onto the wall. His bedroom is filled with riding boots and books. Faulkner's novels captured a decaying South during the Reconstruction era, and his characters most of them deeply flawed and even grotesque, were ripped from his homeland. Faulkner is, of course, you know, one of 
the great American writers. Can you tell us a little bit about his background? Because so much of his work was set here in the South as well, wasn't it? Faulkner was actually a high school dropout. He kind of got to a bit of a start where he, he didn't really, I think, know exactly his direction. And it was actually another writer called Sherwood Anderson who essentially told him, write what you know. And he decided that what he knew was Mississippi. So he decided to focus on his little postage stamp of native soil is what he he called it. He decided to really centre in on stories about Mississippi with the view to say a lot more about the South as a whole. So Faulkner actually created an entire fictional county, which was based on Lafayette County. So it was called Yoknapatorfa County, and its county seat was Jefferson, which was very closely based on Oxford, which is where Roanoke, the house that he lived in, is. It must be so interesting to read about that fictional county and know it so well in literature and then go to see the place that inspired it for real. How did that kind of fictional county kind of map over and inform what you were exploring in in the kind of real world? I think the most interesting place that that played out is Oxford, which is the city. So it would have been Jefferson. So much like Maycomb and Monroeville, it centres around this central courthouse. So from Faulkner's novels, Jefferson is very functional, so it's described as having a few stores, a doctor's office, a lawyer's office. And now it's actually a really kind of cool happening place. There's a ring of bars and kind of artisan coffee shops and around the square. So it's it's actually quite different, but the kind of ghost of Faulkner is still there. So I'd love to hear more about this Bailey Woods Trail too, because, Mm. you know, I'm a big believer in walking for inspiration and I I think it must be so interesting to kind of walk in the place where a great writer like Faulkner got his inspiration and see if some of that rubs off on you too. Absolutely yeah so I didn't meet another soul on the trail either it was very quiet it's just very enclosed kind of you know mossy roots on the grounds and then you know these big kind of enclosing trees that shut out the sunlight essentially um so it was a really kind of yeah quiet solitary kind of walk um towards William Faulkner's house Mm. yeah and as as I said in the article there'd been a storm and there was this kind of really kind of almost stifling kind of soupy air that really felt appropriate given the kind of themes in Faulkner's novels. Soupy air, that's such a beautiful way to describe that kind of deep south feel, that humidity in the air and, and that warm humidity. And so it kind of feels like a blanket wrapped around you. I really love that description. But tell me a little bit more about Rowan Oak too, his house. What was that like visiting? I think what struck me most about the house was how humble and pared back it was um particularly his writing room it really is just a typewriter on top of a very too small table um with kind of notes scribbled over the walls and you know we're talking about one of the greatest writers in american history and to see the spot that 
these acclaimed works were written in was quite jarring. It's, it's so, as I said, it's so humble, it's so pared back. Yeah, I love that, that idea of like peeking into his writing room where the magic happened. I think there's some good advice out there for aspiring writers as well, and and for writers like us too, or writers like me anyway. No distractions, you know. Put that yeah. phone away. Just create a room with no distractions and get on with it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's good advice. Although I don't know if I would get away with writing on the walls in my house, but it sounds like quite good fun. Um, yeah, I think that would be quite fun actually. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> but that's cool because I think Oxford, Mississippi, isn't really maybe on a lot of people's radars. There's so many amazing places big places to go and see but it sounds like it's a really cool town as well as just kind of Mm. having this Faulkner history but speaking of cool towns we're about to go to perhaps the coolest town in the south maybe the coolest town in the states and definitely a contender for the coolest town in the world New Orleans let's hear about that now I arrived on a sticky Easter weekend when the streets were thick with revelers in pastel suits and bunny ears Beads were tangled in iron balconies and a woman sat in a shop doorway belting out Etta James's at last, her voice as sweet as a sugar-powdered beignet. Few places on earth boast such an impressive list of literary alumni as the Big Easy, and I could see why. In the screaming heart of the French Quarter, a place oiled with jazz and bourbon, there's a sense that life exists nowhere but here. A place oiled with jazz and bourbon. I love that. That's beautiful description. I've written about New Orleans and didn't get as accurate and as, as kind of beautiful and concise as that. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Oh my God, though, right? New Orleans is one of the craziest, but also most beautiful cities in the world. It's like, it's an experience. So uh, for people that haven't been, before we get into the literary history of it, what is it like? How would you describe it? It really is one of the most stirring, creative, raw, unfettered cities in the South. I think creativity oozes into every corner of the city. There's a real fierce bohemian spirit. The city really wears its heart on its sleeve, I think. People want to express themselves, whether that's, you know, kids banging buckets on the streets or jazz musicians in preservation hall or street artists that you know take to the walls in the kind of the marini district it it really is this kind of place of unfettered creativity and there's a sense of accepting difference and something that i think would have been really appealing to budding writers um, back in the day and today. When you're in New Orleans, you can't imagine being there and not kind of being inspired to write Mm -hmm. about something or play music or paint something, whatever your thing is. It's just, like you say, it's just bubbling up with this kind of creativity and and juice for for art and being yourself and independence. and Mm -hmm. And I love that about it too. But we're talking about kind of New Orleans and literature, of course, and there's so many writers that have kind of passed through, but who are you... Uh, focusing on while you were there yeah like you say so many writers have have, have passed through um from Walt Whitman to William Faulkner but the man that I focused on the most was Tennessee Williams who's a streetcar named Desire was set in New Orleans so yeah you can really find him in so many different corners of the city he was a man who liked 
to move around a lot. So he lived in multiple different apartments. He actually owned only one house while he was there. The rest of the time he kind of rented accommodation. And I would really recommend getting a guide and going on a kind of literature tour of the city because these places have kind of been absorbed into the fabric of the city. So you could walk right past Tennessee Williams' home and just not know that he ever lived there. And, you know, aside from the kind of literature part of it, you must have caught some gigs. Tell me about the music you saw while you were there as well. The best thing that you can do when you visit New Orleans is actually just be in the city and soak up the city because that's what these writers went to do. And, I mean, jazz is is such a a theme in A Streetcar Named Desire. You know, if you go to a production of the play, you know, the, the kind of blue piano, the jazz, you'll hear that. So Preservation Hall is the best place to go um, for a live jazz gig. Um, it's so intimate, so snug. You go into this kind of tiny room. You're not allowed to record, so nobody's on their phones. It's very present. And the, this these incredible jazz musicians who just put their entire soul into the music they're making. And then beyond that, um, if you go out into the Marigny district, so like outside of the French Quarter, you'll get to uh, Frenchman Street, which is another great place for kind of, yeah, just live music. So um, there's a place called Spotted Cat, um, which has great live jazz sets. Preservation Hall, I I saw a gig there too when I was there and it's amazing. Uh, It's like the venue itself is this kind of like stripped back, slightly kind of, you know, dilapidated place. Yeah. And it's like, then they come on and it's just like, they're standing up and doing the trumpet solos and it's just such a like foot stomping uh, kind of fun gig. And you're so close to it too. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's so intimate. And Frenchman Street's another good tip as well, because, you know, Bourbon Street is mad i mean it's mm-hmm. chaos it, you know it's like apparently it's the only public street in america where it's legal to be naked and that, i think that says everything about wow, uh, bourbon street <laughs> but you know <laughs> anything goes like <laughs> i didn't test it while i was there no. well, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other story but um <laughs> so new orleans is an incredible place and i think it's you know like you say it's this it's kind of this inspiration of creativity, which it sounds like is a theme that kind of ran through the whole trip for you, right? Like the deep South itself was this inspiration for, for literature. Definitely. Yeah. I think the sense that I got from all of these writers is they've ripped up so many of their stories from the place that they were in physically you know, inspiration from the people and the landscapes that surrounded them. Obviously, that's true of a streetcar named Desire because it's actually set within New Orleans. We've spoken about William Faulkner. So there really is this sense of place informing stories. I think that one of the other things that I got from this story too was, you know, literature good literature, great literature, like the writers you're talking about, is a kind of empathy machine in some ways, right? It's, it's, it allows you to kind of step into someone else's shoes, even if it's a fictional character, and, and, and kind of understand that person and that place better. You know, was that something that, that you got out of this too, that sort of by reading about these places, even if it's fictional, kind of showed you a side or, or maybe a deeper side to these places than you could have otherwise had? 
Yeah, definitely. So there's actually a quote in Heart Police to Kill a Mockingbird. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb in his skin and walk around in it. And I guess that's kind of what I did with these places, climbed into the skin of these places and walked around in them. And I really do think that, yeah, you can get this incredible sense of place from these books. And then what's beautiful about it is everybody's perception of a particular city or a particular rural landscape will, will be slightly different. So you have that point of comparison and yeah, you can really immerse yourself within the literature and then see how that compares to the real place. Um, and, and sometimes it will be spot on and other times it will, um, you know, jar and challenge your perceptions um, and, and both is rewarding and exciting. Beautifully said. And it's beautifully written. You're a wonderful writer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if anyone wants to read your article, and I highly recommend you do, it's called Deep South USA, The Right Way. And that's W-R-I-T-E. It's a great idea. It's, It's really well put together. And how can people connect with you as well, Jackie? Yeah, so I am Jackie Agate, J-A-C-Q-U-I-A-G-A-T-E on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, so you can follow my travels there. Well, thank you so much again. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. And thank you to everyone for listening. Remember, you can find out more about Wanderlust and read all their amazing articles at wanderlust.co.uk. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Well, that just about wraps up our time here today. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to hit that follow button and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Please also come back for more. We have lots of incredible stories coming up and we just can't wait to share them with you. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Cheers. This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi Photo Book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and much more with Siwi. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siwi products when you spend £30, visit siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Wanderlust Off The Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosie Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. 